This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash B-E. Welcome, everybody, to another great episode here of the Authority on the B Podcast Network. If you're listening when we're just releasing, this is the 4th of July week, so I hope you're all having a nice holiday here. But of course, yeah, don't skip a week listening to us. We have a great episode today. My guest is Dave Fleming. Dave is a senior writer at ESPN, and during the last three decades at Sports Illustrated, ESPN the Magazine, and ESPN, he's been one of the industry's most prolific, versatile, and imaginative long-form writers. He's traveled the globe while penning more than 35 cover stories. And everything from the Super Bowl to Steph Curry, musical chairs, the world championship of musical chairs, which I never made it that far. I, I, I was the kindergarten champ. And NFL's obsession with glutes. And his new book is Who's Your Founding Father? One Man's Epic Quest to Uncover the First True Declaration of Independence. Perfect topic for this week. Dave, welcome to The Authority. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Let's start here with a big question. We'll see how you can answer. But is everything we think we know about the founding of America wrong? Well, we can get into it, but yeah, pretty <laughs> much. <laughs> and trust me, I was as shocked as you were. And I thought for a second you were going to ask me about my musical chairs experience, uh -huh. but congratulations on your championship. But well, did yeah. you did you get to participate, I guess, while you were covering? Did they get you in there and say, well, you have to see how hard this really is? Yes, and it was. I had no idea it was like roller derby. And I did. I made it to the, the world semifinals. But trust me, that the hitting and the getting knocked off my feet at the at that the musical chairs world championship, not nearly as much of a shock to the system as kind of what I learned on this while researching this book. <laughs> I can imagine. Let's start here. It's just even we're obviously going to get into a lot of details here and some things that are, I think, going to provide some new perspectives on our country's history. What got you interested in the story in the first place? It became an obsession after a while, but initially we moved to North Carolina about 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that this was going to be our home and the place where we raised our children, I think the natural inclination is you start to look into the history and the, you know, kind of what makes this place special, what makes it stand out. And I remember very specifically dropping my daughter, Kate, off at her elementary school. And I was waiting, I think, to talk to a teacher or something in the lobby. And there was a North Carolina flag hanging in the lobby. And the date on the North Carolina flag is May 20th, 1775. And you know, this was like 15 years ago. And the thought occurred to me, it's like, well, why would North Carolina's date be 14 months before we even declared independence as a country? And 
you can appreciate this, right? Because it seems like you're into these kind of like rabbit hole threads and all this sort of like, maybe we don't know what we think we know. Uh Just asking that one question sent me down this incredible historic rabbit hole that again, sort of proved to me that everything I thought I knew about the 4th of July and about the founding of America was incorrect or incomplete. And so it was just seeing that one date and asking that one question and pulling that one thread. And my God, here we are 10 years later. (laughs) And so that date, May 20th, 1775, you know, that date, it has a significance. You found out, okay, this is, wait a second, right? And it's the kind of thing that a lot of people might see it and not really even think about it. And then there's a lot of other people who I'm sure gave it a lot of thought. Where does that date originally come from? Like, why is that date on the flag? In my work, I've collaborated directly with hundreds of educators to support their success. Do you know which of their ed tech frustrations comes up time and again? The sheer number of tools out there and the difficulty of knowing which ones schools like theirs are using to get results. IXL is different. Not only does it perform the functions of dozens of tools, it's currently delivering results for one in four U.S. students, including those in 95 of the top 100 districts. Another major pain point that comes up When a school is excited to implement a new tool only to find out the teachers hate it. Yikes. It helps to know that IXL is loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, saving them time on prep work while enabling them to better support student learning. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments. And independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? If you have a goal to increase achievement for all students, make sure to find out what IXL can do for you. Visit IXL.com forward slash BE for a demo. That's IXL.com forward slash BE. So it dates to a story about the men, the the patriots who founded Charlotte, and which was back in 1775 was on the basically the American frontier. And they were mostly Scots-Irish Presbyterians, but those men, that group of men, and it ranged from farmers to religious fanatics to bartenders to Princeton scholars, this incredible, crazy group of men who founded Charlotte almost 250 years ago, they were the first Americans to formally declare independence from England in writing on May 20th, 1775. And in fact, not only did they do that, and they're the, it's a fascinating story of what led them to that point where they were just like, screw it, we're just putting it in writing, like we're mm-hmm. not waiting. But A volunteer then wrote that document. The document was written, crafted, declared, and then it was ridden on horseback 550 miles up to the Continental Congress, where it didn't gain any traction, but there is significant proof that 14 months later, Thomas Jefferson plagiarized that document while writing his own slightly more famous declaration. Right. And so this document is at least colloquially known as the MECDEC, but the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. And I think you mentioned some of the groups associated with that and the fact that it, you know, ended up looking maybe suspiciously similar to another declaration. Who do you know who wrote this? Who were the signers? I mean, who who was the real brains behind this? Yeah, it was this great mix of, again, sort of uh, religious, almost religious fanaticism. Mm-hmm. So you've got that element, the sort of the Presbyterian element, which back then, especially the Calvinist bent of Presbyterianism, they were very, their number one tenant was no mortal man, no politician, no king, nobody can rule man, only God can rule man. And it's your highest form of obedience to God to fight against that kind of tyranny. So they were religiously motivated to declare independence. Then you get the background of the Scots-Irish, who essentially were 
kicked out of Scotland, kicked out of Ireland, kicked out of Pennsylvania, and came down to Carolina for freedom, they really, having endured this kind of tyranny for centuries and generations, they were really the first group in America to recognize that it wasn't going to get any better. And we might as well just declare it right now in writing and just get it over with. Let's start fighting. I mean, that was essentially the Scots-Irish take on the whole thing. But part of this perfect storm, right, we've got religion, we've got geopolitical, Scots-Irish background. And that sort of feistiness is definitely part of this. But then it's incredible, the six men who really formed and crafted and wrote out the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence were all Princeton scholars that just happened to be in Charlotte during that time when all this stuff was going on. So it's a really unique, it's a very sort of American thing, right? Mm-hmm. That it's you've got these sort of angry Scots-Irish who just want to fight everybody. They're the ones who sort of say, let's do this. And then you actually have these Princeton scholars who could put it into words and write it down and declare it. Yeah, again, this is this incredible perfect storm formed this declaration. And, you know, in a strange bit of coincidence, they were meeting in Charlotte at the courthouse in Charlotte right. on the, at the very moment when word of Lexington and Concord arrived. And that mm-hmm. was really the final, that was the spark that just blew this whole thing up. Yeah, so because of these Princeton scholars, I think what you uncovered is New Jersey, right? Lays claim to the true declaration here. And so these were the days, right, pre-AI, where plagiarism was a little harder to prove. But at some point in time, John Adams, Jefferson's lifelong rival, comes across this mech deck and says, this sounds familiar. Did he go as far as really accusing Jefferson of plagiarism? He went even farther than that. He put it in 1819, when John Adams discovered the mech deck, he put it in writing to Jefferson and to other people that he knew, accusing Thomas Jefferson of plagiarizing the mech deck. So John Adams did not mince words, right? He immediately, when he discovered the mech deck, he immediately wrote to Jefferson and said, basically, you're busted. I caught you. I knew you were a phony all along. And now I have receipts because this mech deck sounds a lot like in probably five or six different areas, mm-hmm. a lot like the declaration that Thomas Jefferson claimed to have written all by himself. So that's really where the story for me, it was kind of like, okay, is this a, it's a legend, it's a folk tale. And then you see John Adams handwriting, right. accusing Thomas Jefferson of plagiarism. You're like, okay, this really happened. Did Jefferson have a defense that you found? It was kind of a typical Jefferson defense, right? He tried to make nice. Then he tried to sort of like defer, you know, for centuries, all Jefferson had to do because he was held in such high esteem. All he had to do was say, especially his cronies, how dare you even question the character of Thomas Jefferson? But you know, in the last 20 years, Thomas Jefferson's character, (laughs) um, our perception of his character has done a complete 180. Back then you could say, oh, I think he plagiarized and people would say, oh no, he would never be capable of that. And now it seems like maybe ninth or 10th on the list of the worst things Thomas Jefferson did in his life. I know in the book originally, I was just going to write, Thomas Jefferson enslaved his own children. So he probably was capable of plagiarism. (laughs) Right. And he seems to have, even again, in these days when it may have been relatively easy, honestly, for something like this to have gone undiscovered, that he still went to some lengths to cover this up and try to cover his tracks, even if he wasn't ultimately successful. Yeah. And I think, again, I think what was really fascinating and hard to do, right, because nobody wants to kind of learn these terrible things about people that we've held in such high esteem, but it really fits a pattern of Thomas Jefferson's throughout his entire life, right? Mm-hmm. Do terrible things, take credit for stuff you didn't do. When you get exposed, cover it up and get your cronies to sort of help in the conspiracy to cover it up. And the mm-hmm. deck fits perfectly into the actions that Jefferson took throughout his life. It's 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 uncanny really. And I think, again, 
with Jefferson, it comes down to the lie. That's the other thing you discover about the Declaration and July 4th is that he wasn't tasked with writing anything original. Mm -hmm. He was just told to sort of take care of this, essentially what was overdue paperwork. We were at risk of losing the Revolutionary War before we had even declared our independence. And so it was a rush job. And they were like, look, just cut and paste, grab stuff from everywhere, all the sentiments of the day, synthesize it. And so we have something we can sign formally. And that's what he did. But it, when the declaration became famous and became this incredible document of human history, Jefferson then took full credit for writing it, even though it was a committee. And he also took full credit for all the ideas and phrases, which was just 100% not true. Yeah. So much of what you describe about Jefferson, even in this light, is making me think he would fit right in in modern times, wouldn't he? <laughs> you know, he's, you know, blatantly being caught doing something, lying about it, going about his life anyway, creating his own narrative, his own legend. In a lot of ways, it makes complete sense, right? Could anybody really be this good at this many different things, of course? And like you said, it was a functional document, right? It wasn't meant to be a distinctive prose. It was meant to communicate a specific demand. And then once it becomes something that's lauded, it's like, yeah, of course, I'm a genius. I wrote this. It's beautiful. I got to tell you, you're, <laughs> the point, though, that you make, and it is so good because it helped me because I was like in reading the things that like John Adams and his supporters wrote to Thomas Jefferson and the stuff that the Jeffersonians accused John Adams of, I was like, oh, okay. The political climate today, not even, not nearly as rough or disorganized or awful as it was at the very founding of our country. And it does put you at ease a little bit because you're like, okay, this is part of democracy. This has been going on in cycles for our entire existence as a country. Yeah. The stuff that Thomas Jefferson's cronies accused John Adams of being a hermaphrodite, not possessing the sensibilities of a woman and not strong enough to be thought of as a man. And, you know, it's like, okay, maybe all the political rhetoric today isn't quite as bad as we think it is. Right. Yeah. It's interesting how these things they keep coming back. So going back to the beginning, you noticed this date on the flag. You thought that's curious. You became interested in this and probably some amount of time passed before you started pursuing it in earnest this book. But then you go and you start talking to people, you start researching, pulling things. What did you find when you started to talk to people? Were there a lot of people who were just kind of like hoping somebody was going to come and ask them about this? You know, was there a lot of awareness of this or interest? I couldn't believe, well, first of all, I was shocked that no one had done a book like this already. Mm -hmm. I mean, the story is incredible and the things that it uncovers are groundbreaking. So I was really surprised that no one had beaten me to it. And I was relieved. I couldn't believe the amount of which the Mecklenburg Declaration, it sort of hides in plain sight. It's all over the place in North Carolina. There are statues and roads and churches and parks and archives and cemeteries. It's the proof of this is everywhere. And I think it was a long-standing battle between North Carolina and Virginia over who should get credit for being the sort of cradle of American independence. So that was the, I was shocked at how much was out there. I thought it was going to be me digging through archives and cemeteries, finding scraps of this and scraps of that. Like the John Adams letters, they're profuse. You know, I thought maybe if I could find one little scrap, it's pages and pages and pages of documents. So I was relieved that there was so much stuff and that it's, it was such, it ended up being such a great fun story to tell too. It's, it is not dry history. It's some of the stuff is the twists and turns are crazy. Yeah. I hadn't really heard about all this, but there's prominent individuals who had a lot of awareness and even straight up acknowledgement right, of the reality here. I think it's as 11 U.S. presidents and and Burns, George Will, I mean, people who have media platforms, who have reach. What was their perspectives on this that you found? You make, you make really good points. Ken Burns, David McCullough, 
Andrew Roberts, who wrote Napoleon and Churchill and King George III, Cokie Roberts, the list just goes on and on. And then on top of that, men like Billy Graham used to preach right. at MacDeck and 11 U.S. presidents, five U.S. presidents have come to Charlotte to celebrate and commemorate the MacDeck in person. And I live here and I had no idea any of those people were involved or supported it. It also opens up this really fascinating avenue of why we believe what we believe and what things that we decide have enough proof and things that don't have enough proof. But somebody like David McCullough and Koki Roberts, too, they were like, you know, the preponderance of evidence, especially the anecdotal eyewitness evidence is beyond reproach. And mm -hmm. It's nice when you feel like, man, do I want to be saying all these things? And then you go, well, I mean, I'm not the only one saying them. All these really respected historians and, and all these presidents have said it already. I'm just joining the chorus on that, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting when you think about, especially, again, we talk about the modern times of the internet right and everybody has a platform and media personalities and some of these people being documentarians and columnists and presidents who has more reach than that and perhaps there were perspectives and maybe you found this among some people you talked to who were like well the evidence seems to be that this is true but what does it really mean i guess i don't know if people thought that it's not that it's the conspiracy theory but it's just like substantively What's the outcome? And the outcome maybe is that, okay, Jefferson doesn't look so good in, in retrospect. But other than that, does it change anything? You know, maybe people just said, well, we just never talked about it before because we didn't think anybody would care. <laughs> or we just, you know, when it came up, we did talk about it. I, I wrote about it, but nobody, I don't know. <laughs> but then it seems to be that you found, well, all the evidence was out there, but nobody really followed it. The MECDEC has gone in cycles as well, right? It has become national obsessions mm -hmm. and then almost died out and then become a national obsession and then almost died out. And that coincides with the Civil War. It coincides with the presidents visiting in the early, early 20th century. So yeah, the MECDEC is a victim of these sort of waves of interest and non-interest. But for me, I guess the thing that really started this whole thing was when Virginia tried to claim too much credit for the declaration, for fighting the Revolutionary War, for, for all that stuff. And North Carolina just said, hey, hey, wait a second. <laughs> we were first. Mm -hmm. And I do think we care in America. We care who was first. We care who was the first man on the moon. We care about the first person to break the four minute mile, like being first matters. And in this instance, it really does. Because again, from a patriotic standpoint, by the time Jefferson wrote his declaration, it was already a foregone conclusion that we were at war, people had already died. It didn't take a lot of bravery to write his declaration. It was mm -hmm. overdue paperwork. But what the men in Charlotte did, they did it before it was safe to do it. They did it knowing that they, if somebody found this document, they could all be hung for treason. So to me, it does really matter. It does really matter who did it first. Yeah. And you make another really good point about for the longest time, after we declared independence and we fought the Revolutionary War, the idea that this democracy would actually catch on or mm -hmm. work or even last, nobody really knew that for sure. And so for the first 50 years almost, 45 years of America, no one celebrated the revolution or the declaration. It was like we couldn't even take a breath. We were trying to sort of see if this experiment would work. And I think that really contributed to the MECDEC being lost to time because mm -hmm. all of these decades went by before somebody celebrated who was first at declaring independence. And then it was kind of like you said, it's, is it really that important? Right. July 4th wasn't July 4th until whenever. Right. And then right. by that point, it was assigned by whomever was around at the time and wanted to make it a big deal. And uh, except for in North Carolina, because forever they have celebrated May 20th, not instead of, but bigger 
May 20th bigger than July 4th. Even I live in a little college town and I found some records from about a hundred years ago where the faculty was arguing that they should celebrate, they should do away with July 4th and celebrate May 20th as our Independence Day. So at least here where I am, yeah, it's a, it's the date is a big deal. Yeah, well, why not have more than one? It starts in North Carolina. You start to see the evidence. You're finding documents in small towns across the state. So what made you travel to London as part of the process? That seems like it's a bit of a distance to go. Yeah, there's a great scene in the book where I'm I'm full on obsessed now with the mech deck, with like searching through archives and cemeteries and my wife is, I mean, God bless her. She's supporting me this whole time. But at, when I was at my deepest obsession, I found that there were there were possibly proof and documentation of the mech deck in the British National Archives. And I texted my wife and said, I think I need to go to London. <laughs> and she was, she was like, um, okay, are you going to use frequent flyer miles? I'm like, yeah. And she was like, all right, have a good trip. But you know, the original document, the original Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence burned in 1800, which is not uncommon. That happens all throughout American history. Documents that are really important burned. I mean, house fires were in incredibly common. So the original document was destroyed, but there is proof that it was printed in newspapers. It was referred to in church records, in war pension applications. And it was mentioned several times by the final royal governor of North Carolina, Josiah Martin. And all of his archives and documents and letters are in the British National Archives. And there was also some speculation that in some of these letters that he sent to the Earl of Dartmouth, who was the essentially like the Secretary of State during the Revolutionary War for England, that Josiah Martin in his letters about the mech deck and about the sort of full-on rebellion that was going on in North Carolina, he included a reprint of the mech deck from a newspaper at the time. Mm -hmm. And what you discover, what I discovered in the British National Archives is this has been there, that letter and that newspaper had been there for hundreds of years until an associate of Thomas Jefferson's went to the archives took the proof out and destroyed it. And there's actually a note, a handwritten note from an archivist that says the name of this man, that he was associated with Thomas Jefferson and that he took the proof and didn't return it. And so again, now it's like, well, I'm not just writing a book. I'm in the middle of like a national treasure part three. I felt like Nick Cage or Indiana Jones because now it's like a full-on conspiracy that goes all the way to the height of the U.S. government and across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> and now a quick break for a word from our sponsor, MyFlex Learning. Let's talk about flex time in schools. The potential benefits to our students make it totally worth exploring. There's more time for personalized learning, increased choice and agency for students, and the increased engagement that comes along with it, dedicated time for intervention, and overall, as school leaders, it provides you and your faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be a challenge. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in. It can hold you back from ensuring students make good use of their time. That's why I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with the seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. If you want to see for yourself, visit myflexlearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash BE You'll learn all about MyFlex Learning, what it can do for your school, and you'll receive a $500 off offer for your first year. Check it out. It sounds as though you determined pretty quickly when you started looking into this that there was a lot of evidence around a lot of documentation that there was a story there, which is making me think, you know, obviously you went to London, also some other travel involved here. At what, at what point 
were you officially working on the book? At what point did you have the book deal and you knew because it sounds as though, right, you determined pretty fast, yes, there's a book here, there's a lot of stuff around here, but certainly once you start to make these trips, that's probably once you know what you're working on. Yeah, for me, it was, I went to Quincy, Massachusetts, where John Adams, his home and all of his presidential records and all that stuff are kept. And when you see his letters to Thomas Jefferson about the MECDEC, and you can hold them in your hands. That's when, for me, it's a really good point. That's for me when it was like, I'm all in. And John Adams, it's really interesting. John Adams, in one of his final letters of his life and on the MECDEC, he says, I hope future generations will investigate this more and make it more well-known what happened, what the Patriots in Charlotte did, and how Thomas Jefferson abused that. And it was almost like this, it's cheesy, but it's almost like, I felt like John Adams was telling me, asking me, like, carry this on, like make, you know, go ahead and do this story. And so it was, it was being in Massachusetts when it was like, okay, I'm all in, I, I, I'm going to follow this to the end and do what John Adams asked, which is just make people, more people aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think about there because you have to have some sense you don't know exactly where it's going to go but you have some sense okay this is going to add up to something it was making me think of i won't identify them and not to knock my own medium but a a podcast series i listened to not that long ago that was you know sort of investigative right not not quite to this level but around a topic in the sports world but it was maybe a six-part series and as I was listening to it, I was thinking, I, I think they started, you know, they committed to six parts before they, they knew the whole story because they kind of ran out of steam around part three, right? <laughs> there just wasn't as much to this story as was originally intended. And then it sort of putters along versus in this case, of course, there's this vast web and a lot of things to discover. And, and I mean, the Freedom Spring, another thing here where it's like, oh my goodness, I'm really just uncovering all kinds of things. Yeah, we've all been guilty of that, where we start on a project that we think is going to be six episodes, Mm -hmm. 6,000 words, and you get into it and you're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, this is, this is um, half the magazine pages I thought I would need. And there's no shame in that. But this one truly even midway through it, it was like, oh my God, I could work on this for 20 years and not be, it was more that I had to cut off the spigot. And I understood researching this book, why people take 10 years on books, because all these different threads and different, these really interesting angles, you could just follow them forever. And I think what really helped me too was I wrote it, I didn't write it as a history book. It's more sort of my adventure trying to discover this story, uncover this story. And that's what really gave the book, it for me, gave it momentum, is that I had so much fun. It was such a blast kind of just doing this thing and following these threads. And you're right, Freedom Spring is maybe the best example of that. Freedom Spring is the natural spring outside of Charlotte, where these Princeton scholars used to meet to discuss writing the mech deck. Mm. So technically, this spring is the actual sort of birthplace, the cradle of American independence, because it was the first place where they decided, here's what we're going to say, here's when we're going to say it, here's when we're going to write it and declare it. And this spring had been lost for more than a century. And probably my favorite part of the book, and it involves me convincing a local Baptist minister who knew the area trespass through a couple of different places that we didn't own the property and different construction sites. And with his research, or I should say my research and his knowledge of the area and his willingness to commit a few crimes, we were able to find the Freedom Spring. And there's a great scene in the book where it's like, I was overcome because it was, it's such an exact physical connection right back to the mech deck. I reached my hand into the spring when we found it and I took a little sip and did a toast and he was like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. But in the book I wrote, you know, I've either, I have either just shared a toast with our founding fathers or I've given myself the worst case of diarrhea in the history of 
modern literature. But as you can see, I'm still fine. I definitely survived it. And uh, I would do it again, I think. Yeah, maybe it was both. <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, did investigating this story make you think more broadly about the relative recognition and history around the Southern colony's role in the Revolutionary War and the way that story is told and, and how they're not commonly featured all that prominently in a lot of the history as it's written. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because that is a that's connected to the MECDEC, right? Not only does Charlotte and North Carolina not really get the credit they deserve for being the first to declare independence, but that was the other thing I learned when pulling on these threads. The Southern theater of the Revolutionary War was a critical turning point that none of us ever have ever been taught or learned about in history class. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. And we all know that Cornwallis surrendered in Yorktown. What we don't know is why was he there? And a big part of why he was there is that he got his butt kicked through South Carolina and North Carolina by the Mechdeckers and had to go to the coast to recover and recoup. And mm -hmm. so, again, the original plan of the Southern Theater was coming through Charleston, just wreck havoc, crush all these little local militias, and then get all the loyalists to join up. And by the time Cornwallis makes it through North Carolina and turns north, he will be able to meet the forces coming down from New York in the middle. That was always the plan. And it was going really well until Cornwallis got to Charlotte. And that was the first place, even though Charlotte was outnumbered uh, outnumbered 15 to 1, I think, that was the first place where Cornwallis had to retreat, the first time on American soil where he had to go backwards. And it ruined England's entire plan for the Southern theater of the war. And again, I had no idea, literally, I had no idea until I was in the middle of writing this book, how critical the South was in helping us win our independence. And it's incredible to me that, that the South doesn't get more credit for that or just even more acknowledgement for that critical role. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Globally, it was making me think about, I spent time, it's been a while now, but a good amount of time in Australia. And there's a significant amount of pride in Australia and New Zealand around their role in World War II. And I'm thinking, you are not mentioned in the history that we learned about the war, right? Like, I, I don't think I could have told you that you were in that war at all, because it's just not, it's not part of the narrative that's told. And of course, in, in the broad picture, everything has its own place, but certainly how the folks in those northern colonies, the mid-Atlantic, the ones that are most prominently featured there after that elementary school might have a hard time saying, okay, what exactly were 13 colony? Was Georgia one of them? Was South Carolina, right? Uh, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And I think that's part of this thing is the way our brains work. And you just nailed it, right? We get to a certain age we believe what our history teachers have told us in eighth grade, and then we just lock it down. It's like, oh, Bunker Hill, Boston Tea Party, Valley Forge, and Yorktown. And that's it. I'm done, right? I'm not going to learn anymore. And that's what makes it so hard when you're trying to be like, hey, hey, there's so much more incredible stuff that you need to know and acknowledge and appreciate because we're talking about people who died, right, to help us sacrifice their lives to help us gain our independence. It's the least we can do is at least include them in the narrative. Yeah, it's certainly that process of what you did with this book and what successful historians do with history, what a successful person in the ministry would do with the, the Bible, right? Is like contextualizing it, putting yourself in that place and time that just knowing what happened or reciting the facts of what happened is doesn't really teach you anything or it's not that interesting so when you contextualize the courage required at different points in time to make the declaration right just to, to go out on a limb at a time when it may have 
led to negative consequences versus stating it when everybody already knew what was going on. The same as so many other things to say, okay, what did this mean in that time? We only have so many pages here that are describing years, decades, centuries of that. And the time they were living in was very different from now. And it's easy to look back now, one, that we know what happened. We know what the outcome was. We know how the war went. We know what history has meant since then. We kind of know, but we don't necessarily know at that time. What were the sentiments? How many of their fellow colonists would, were opposed to the idea of independence, period? And what might those words have meant? And same with the, the story of the plagiarism, right? It only, it becomes what it becomes because of the ultimate historical impact of the document and the legacy and how it contributed to the legacy of Jefferson over the centuries as the founding father in that role, even more so than the individual framers of the Constitution and other documents that it, it's not as well remembered. What, what did James Madison do? And what, you know, these, because he was held up there as that auteur theory, right? The singular voice who created this thing. Dave, kind of as we're winding down here, I do want to go to a bit of a lightning round to get through a variety of topics here. The first one, I didn't even know I was going to ask this until now, but what's the soundtrack at the World Music Chairs, Musical Chairs Championship? Oh, it's pretty awesome. It was mostly, it was like 90, it was like 90s hip hop and 80s pop. So it was, uh, the music was probably the best part of that. And they had a full on DJ, but they had to, he had to be blindfolded because okay. they didn't want him cheating about when he would stop the music. I wonder how important is it to know the songs to be able to identify when the music has stopped? Um, I, it's... I, you would think it would help, but it doesn't because it's just a random record stop. Okay. So he's not waiting for like a beat drop to, it's like, he just stops it. What really becomes, it's how many elbows you can throw and how low you can get your hips. And I can't remember what the prize was, but people will fight each other for a free t-shirt. I'll tell you that much. How high are the chairs? I mean, they're like regular folding chairs and they were, it was like WWF because uh -huh. people were throwing their, it was like linebackers colliding. So the chairs had to be breakable and foldable. Cause I'm about six, five. I'm thinking I'll be at a disadvantage, right? Because I had, if you're at the right exact height, you can get right into that chair. I'm not going to ask any more about this event. It's interesting that you participated in Writing in sports, I'm sure you've heard the theories that we should just put a regular person in Olympic events, right? Like just have some guy running the 100 meters so you can see how fast these people really are and that kind of thing. This might not be Olympic level, but hey, get in there and these people practice. They really, yeah, they tear up the rug in their living rooms and their China cabinets are a disaster, but they're they're the gold medalists. So when you first started talking to people just in your life, not sources for the book, but you said, hey, there's this story and I'm working on this. What kind of response did people have? Were they, did they know anything about it or did they think that sounds like kind of a crazy story? Thank you. I can't believe someone finally is going to do this story. Mm -hmm. And especially locally, right? It was kind of like, oh, thankfully the story will live on. But there is, and it's a term we call in the book, it's called mechdeck face. Mm -hmm. And you've had it a little bit and other people have it when you learn the actual, these actual details yeah. behind the mech deck, behind the war, behind what Jefferson's accused of, people just can't believe it. Their jaws just drop that the actual truth behind these things behind July 4th is so much different than what our eighth grade teachers told us. So I got a lot of mech deck face in response. Yeah. And see, and even throughout this year, you're almost like cluing me into, I live in Virginia, but I didn't grow up here, but I have been here for quite a while, but I didn't know about this rivalry with North Carolina. We're in Arlington. So it's like not really Virginia because it's more DC, but I'm like, man, I didn't know I was supposed to uphold our legacy here against North Carolina. <laughs> you know, when Jefferson's cronies accuse North Carolina of lying about the MEC deck. Mm -hmm. There are priests and preachers that went on record saying 
I will drive myself up to Virginia and physically confront any Virginian who doubts the mech deck. So uh, North Carolina is not messing around. They had priests who were like, I want to fight anyone who doubts the mech deck. And I will add quickly, when William Howard Taft came to Charlotte to celebrate the mech deck, he said he would brain anyone who dared doubt the document. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt yeah. it at all. Was there anything that's, that you found most shocking, even though when you knew there was a lot here that really stood out as I did not expect to find that? It was the layer upon layer of awfulness with Thomas Jefferson. I think most of us know a few of those stories, but it was kind of like it was never ending. Mm-hmm. And I went into this thinking of him a certain way. And by the end, I was almost fatigued by just awful story after awful story after awful story. And I mean, whether it's his relationship with Sally Hemings or the way he terrorized his friend's wives when they went out of town Mm. or the way he lied about the mech deck and covered it up or about his own sort of the way he approached slavery and the fact that he, I think he had 607 slaves and he only freed two of them during his entire lifetime. That to me was, I'm still, I mean, the book's been out for a month. I'm still in shock when I think about the difference between what Thomas Jefferson was really like and what we all perceived him to be like. Right. Was there any anybody who came out positively on the other side of that? Anybody you learned or you knew about prior to the book, but came out saying, oh, I, I actually have a newfound appreciation for this person. I think a lot of it, for me, it was it was John Adams, right? Mm-hmm. Again, we've all seen the, we read the book and we've seen the HBO thing and he's sort of turned into a cartoon character, right? Yeah. Of a grumpy old man. I think without a doubt, uh, one of, if not the greatest Americans in history, just what he stood for and the work that he did and committing his entire life to getting this country off the ground. And then- Associated with that, you realize that his secret weapon was Abigail Adams, was his wife. She really was the true sort of badass of that family. So that was kind of nice to uncover a deeper sense of who John Adams was. Right. Uh, Who was Captain James Jack? So he's known as the South's Paul Revere, but he's the guy on May 20th, 1775, when they write and declare the mech deck. They look around for somebody and they need a volunteer to risk his life to to ride the mech deck by horseback up to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And Captain James Jack was a militia captain and he was also a tavern owner. And so I really think he was probably half drunk and was like, I'll do it. (laughs) And then they handed him the mech deck and knowing that if he got caught with that, he would be hung for treason. He rode the mech deck 550 miles all the way up to Philadelphia. And so in Charlotte, there are beers named after Captain Jack. There, there's an incredible statue. There are parks. There are Our soccer team is named in honor of him. He is like a legend in Charlotte. 550 miles is a trip. <laughs> yeah, and for all my Boston friends out there, you need to know that, that Captain James Jack is called Paul Revere of the South, only braver. Okay, so before <laughs> uh, in the South, we love to point off, point out to people, especially in Boston, that it was like Captain Jack rode five hundred and thirty-eight miles farther than Paul Revere, and he never got caught. So, who's right. the true patriot? Exactly. And you mentioned Captain Jack May, there's beers named after him, and he may have been half drunk on this ride. Did you put out a beer in conjunction with the book launch? We did, inspired by Captain Jack. And again, this is sort of part of this whole thing from start to finish has just been a blast. And I hope it comes across in the book, which people say is fun to read. But Mm -hmm. we thought what a perfect way to sort of honor these Scots-Irish patriots, and especially Captain Jack, We teamed up with, the publisher teamed up with a local brewery near where I live in North Carolina, and they put out Mech Deck Honey Ale associated with the book. And the cover of the book is on the cover of the beer. It's actually quite delicious. And this past month, it's been the brewery's number one selling beer. The book might not be selling, but the beer is. 
There you go. Well, if you're down there in North Carolina, check it out. The last one here, if we obviously have an opportunity now, would we go back and revisit what we know about history and learn new things and reconstruct our knowledge for maybe you and me, we're unlearning and relearning things we learned before, but for a certain generation, they're still learning these things for the first time. Is there one thing that stands out to you from what you discovered in this book and what you find most meaningful that you would want today's students to know to learn as part of their history? I think you touched on it perfectly, right? It's the idea of, I think the most patriotic thing we can do is learn the whole story. You can still be a fan of Jefferson. You can still be a fan of Virginia's role in the Revolutionary War and independence. All I'm saying is expand your knowledge, right? Learn as much as you can. Don't put those walls up after you learn four or five things and you memorize them and then move on. Be open to all these incredible threads of history that as a tapestry really make up who we are and how we started as a country. And so I'm not saying make up your mind on one thing or the other, just be open to all the different threads and ideas out there because just by being open to that has sort of taken me on this incredible adventure. And I would encourage other people to do the same thing. Amazing. So Dave, I really want to thank you for being here on the show. Anything else you're working on right now or anywhere else our listeners can check out what you've been working on? You can see all my work really at my Twitter, which is Flem ESPN. And I do have a couple of different great stories working right now for ESPN that'll probably be coming out this summer sometime, but they deal with different topics such as sports riots, burpees, and this strange story about sports collectors and Barbies. So that's, I'll just give you a little hint about that. After you finish the book, you should check that out. Great. Well, I hope your interest is peaked out there, listeners. Yeah, please do. We'll put the link below to Amazon and to Hachette as the publisher for Who's Your Founding Father, where you can find the book. If you missed Father's Day, maybe you can buy it for your father or just enjoy it. It's a great summer read course relates to everything that's happening right now at the 4th of July and independence and the time of year when we think about these things, right? So perfect timing there. Please also do subscribe to The Authority for more author interviews like this one and visit bpodcastnetwork.com to learn about all of our shows. I think we're at 25 plus now. I should know this as the co-founder, but I can't even keep up. We're doing pretty well here. <laughs> Dave Fleming, thanks so much for joining the show. Oh, thanks. I had a really good time. I really appreciate it. And uh, happy second um, Independence Day, I guess. We'll put it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. This has been the Authority Podcast, hosted by Ross Romano, edited by Gage Sanderson. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.